Jeff Syracuse, Metro Council member. Thank you so much for joining me. Taylor, thank you for having me. So what is the Metro Council? That's the local legislative branch. So just like in federal or state or local government, you've got an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. So the Metro Council is the legislative branch of our metropolitan government, which we are a combination city-county government. We merged uh, 60, 60 years ago. Okay. And because, of course, Nashville, we're also the state capital. Right. Um, so there's a lot of influence that I feel like the city has over the rest of the state. Mm. It also has a lot of influence, I feel like, culturally right now as well. Sure. Uh, Nashville is a super hot city to visit. It's in the uh, the zeitgeist, I think, in a lot of ways. Ever since that Nashville TV show became a hot spot for bachelorettes, you've been here for how many years now? 25 years, hard to believe. Yeah, so you've seen a lot of change happen. What are the biggest changes that you've noticed to the city? Well, it's pretty wild to have gone from stable city to the flood the Great Recession, and then nobody would have thought that we would have rebounded and grown like crazy. And just over the past 12 years, let's say my first 12 years, very different than the last 12 years or so, mm -hmm. right? How fast we've grown and just trying to keep up with that growth has been an extraordinary challenge. Well, what does a rising tide lift, lifts all boats mean to you and for our community? Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, that is indeed one of the major themes right now, if you will. Um, I think, you know, across the country, we can say there's the division between the haves and the have nots, let's say uh, here locally that exists. Also, we were trying to make sure that our growth is working for everybody so that it lifts everybody up. And we do have marginalized communities and communities there where growth has not touched as much or that success has not been reinvested into them. So that's one of the lenses that I certainly look through as a local elected official to make sure that all of our growth and success is being felt by everybody. Gentrification is Ab what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. So some change is good and some change is very difficult and uh, can be very negative. Well, it's made uh, made it difficult. And I mean, this is not just an issue in Nashville. I feel like this is across the U.S. right now, it's true. which it, it's a good problem to have. But there's a little bit of a, of a housing thing going on. Rent has become so expensive you know, I think most millennials, they don't even think that they're ever going to own a home. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's like you see some some of the communities, like the way East Nashville has grown. Uh, my aunt has lived here for 30, 40 years now. And she told me that when she first moved here, she bought a house over on Dickerson Pike, hmm. off Dickerson Pike. And she said it would have probably doubled or quadrupled in profit if she would have hung on to it all these years sure yeah um but it's kind of sad too because you know i feel like a lot of people um they're broke they're living paycheck to paycheck they're trying to work they're taking the bus into downtown to work and it feels like the you know the average working person re really can't get ahead into today's world and again that's not just in nashville i think that's something that's happening all across the u.s what are you doing to to help folks that are either poor or working class that are struggling right now? What is a, what do you plan on doing for our city, and what have you done in the past? Oh wow, that's that's a huge issue for sure. Um, 
we are struggling for sure to keep up with the growth and the i would almost say the victim of our own success in a way like you say mm -hmm. uh our growth has made it such that folks can't live afford to live here anymore yeah small business can't afford sometimes to find a place to function uh to move into to be able to afford rent uh, rapid growth and development has a victim of your own success aspect to it in that it exacerbates affordability. If you're going to knock something down and rebuild it, well, then to recoup that cost, your tenants have to be able to pay for all that. Yeah. Your infrastructure costs, all of that. Um, there's a saying that the most affordable place to live or work in is the one that's still standing. Um, there's So there's an, uh, an affordability issue uh, or an affordability aspect to preservation. So the balance between growth and preservation is something that uh, we are certainly struggling with here. And then, of course, you get into culture, and that almost becomes then a, uh, another dimension of uh, preservation, if you will. So w what are we doing? Um, certainly, the pandemic exacerbated all our issues, for sure. And then we had a lot of injection of federal dollars uh, to help uh, stem the tide from the pandemic. We have been focused like a laser on taking a lot of those dollars and making sure we set ourselves up for uh, to be able to handle a lot of the growth. One of the biggest issues right now is homelessness. And the, pan the pandemic has exacerbated that. But so has our rapid growth and development. I think the pandemic has brought a lot of more transient type of homelessness here, but it has also displaced people. So one of the things that we have been doing is we are about to open, probably in the next six to nine months or so, the first transitional housing development just uh, behind the courthouse, where it'll be 90 units of transitional housing with all the wraparound services at the bottom of it. Ten years ago, we would never even probably have thought of building something like this. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a need. But we're, this is just an example of being able to uh, catch up to all the rapid growth that's happening here. Yeah, well, uh, it's like for every positive, there is also a negative. Yeah. And I think that's just, just the trade-off. It's the balance of life, yin and yang. And it's there's certain things that I can think back to that I've seen since I've lived here. Uh, for instance, when the NFL draft came through town. The, when was that? Back in 2018 or 2019? Right, before the panic. 17 or 18? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I always like vividly remember since the time that I moved here, there was a, a homeless encampment that was right under at, like Ellington Parkway. Do you know what I'm, what I'm talking about? Absolutely. And yeah. I saw that they put up, the city put up a bunch of signs mm -hmm. to basically displace those homeless people they just disappeared. It's right. like, where do those people go? That's right. Um, so it's like you see something like that, like, yes, the city in theory is trying to bring us more money and help our local economy by having the NFL come to town, which is a huge event, gives a lot of people jobs. Sure. But it's like, on the other hand, personally, like, I just wonder what happened to the, those homeless people. Where did they go? Did, sure. Were they given jobs, like as vendors? You know, I think something like that. It's like teach a man to fish, and I, I think the other thing when it comes to, to to homelessness, it's not just about the economic crisis. Hmm. I feel like homelessness 
it always comes back to a couple things. It's mental illness oh, yeah. and addiction, and they go hand in hand. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I try to make no judgments uh, against people um, if, they, if they're struggling, but there's also a safety factor there for people in this city. Right. Um, as far as, like, I, I straight up, I, I can think of off the top of my head, I had a friend who had one of his instruments so, stolen his window was smashed in, his instrument was stolen, his computer was stolen with, with all of his all of his music and stuff on there. And it's like in that instance, like as much as I want to be an empath and try and help someone, if someone is addicted to drugs, if someone is doing some kind of criminal activity, mm-hmm. what do you do? Because it seems like we do not have enough officers on the police force here in nashville sure that is definitely one issue we're about 170 officers short right now of budgeted positions and part of that is uh what we were paying them if we're not competitive whether it's private or public sector if you don't recruit and retain employees you're going to lose them yes and so what we found whether it's teachers firefighters police officers uh, or any municipal workers we had to be competitive. And so we have been focused like a laser over the past uh, three or four, five years or so, really this, this term, um, if not a little bit before that, about reinvesting our success into our people. They are the ones who truly run the government, uh, not the politicians. Our, my job, as I've always seen it, is to support those tens of thousands of Metro employees mm-hmm. who actually do the day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the ones who make us succeed. Um, so in this past budget, for example, uh, we really had to take a look at what the average salary of a police officer was compared to Tennessee Highway Patrol and others around us in order to be competitive. What um, is what is the average salary? Uh, that, that, that depends. It, uh, Danny can pull it up if, if he... Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, if you don't know, it's okay. It was roughly you, uh, 60, 50 It was to the 60, average salary of what again? Sorry. Uh, a police, a police officer. officer in Nashville. Um, which has now gone up, um, I'm happy to say. Um, uh, it has been a success, I will say, that we have this past year, um, we did a 6% uh, increase. So there you go. Anywhere between 44 to 73 um, is, you know, depending on where they come in from, uh, what, sure, what, what, the experience. what level experience for, for sure. Yeah. Um, but the most important thing is a starting pay because when we re- recruit a young uh, person to, to be a police officer, yeah. just like anything else, you want them to build a career and you want them to stay and grow and have that opportunity. Yeah. Um, so that has been something we've been focused a lot on, uh, the HR issues of Metro. Well, if I'm going to be entirely honest, I, I don't know why anybody would want to be a police officer today. It's indeed a, a difficult job. Um, and it's been very interesting to be the chair of public health and safety this past year. When you look at the relationship between health and safety and all of the burden that is on a police officer, similar to a teacher, a teacher has to deal with everything to do with life, almost with that student, with that family. Same thing with a police officer in a different respect, right? They have to deal with so much. Uh, A perfect example is the, the bill that I just passed last night at our final council meeting of this term uh, in regards to speakers interior speakers of lower broadway bars and clubs police officers down in lower broadway 
they deal with the homelessness, they deal with street vendors, they deal with drugs, they deal with uh, all, so, all sorts of issues, peoples yeah. and tourists, and, and, and gosh, should they have to deal with all that? Or should we try to assist them in bringing some synergy to resources? And so as part of this bill that, that we passed on third reading last night, uh -huh. we did just that. Um, the Mayor's Office of Nightlife um, is something that's pretty new. It was uh, about a year old. And, I never even knew this was a thing. It's interesting. It really kind of started in Europe, if you will, as economies have become 24-7. Well, you can't just have the codes department working 9 to 5 anymore. You have issues that go throughout the night. You want a successful economy, but you also have to manage it well. Yeah. So here in the U.S., New York, Philly, New Orleans is one of the most recent ones, and now Nashville has a mayor's office of nightlife as we try to make sure that our downtown and lower Broadway, and certainly across the city, are going to be successful, and they need those resources and support. So what we did was make sure that codes, our National Department of Transportation, and our police department, who all have enforcement mechanisms and responsibilities, that they had an, a memorandum of understanding that, okay, the police need to do this. Codes, you do that, and NDOT, you do this. Can you give, but, like, a specific example? Um, well, the speakers, for, for one thing. I mean, all that the bill does was to say, look, folks, we've, we've started to, the sound is going up because one club turns their speaker out, the next club turns their speaker out. Are there noise and complaints the, downtown? Oh, well, the, the complaints really were coming from the, the police officers. I mean, certainly from whether it's residents or visitors, uh, noise complaints were certainly yeah. coming there. But the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess you could say, was uh, police officers had situations, safety situations down there that they couldn't hear. And they couldn't hear each other uh, talk about it on the radios or whatnot. There was some gunfire in the past uh, few four weeks uh, down on Lower Broadway. The officers could not locate it. They couldn't communicate with each other to try and locate it. So that's when they came to, to me and, and said, look, we, we need to try to do something about this. And so as chair of public health and safety, and then also somebody who's in the music industry and understands the live music uh, business, I said, okay, I'll, I'll try to see if I can't bring some consensus to this. And so we did. There was one major issue that everybody could agree on and that's what we just started with which was the large interior speakers 10 feet from a do open door or window you can't turn them out out anymore keep them in because then all of a sudden then for the musicians well i can't hear anymore because it's blasting and so i turn my wedge up the bass player turns his wedge up and then that cumulative effect on yeah. lower broadway just makes it deafening and so we didn't do anything about lowering the volume didn't have to that's already in the code we just said turn those speakers in and that's the level setting, pun intended, aspect to. to so to, it's just because a, a lot of ours, they'll they'll point speakers. Like I, I played at, I play sure. at Big Machine on occasion. Right. On a Sunday afternoon, they'll stick a speaker right out by the door. Right. That's what it's yeah. about. That's what it was about. The ambient speakers that are out there, so that you can kind of hear what's going on and say, "Yeah, I want to go in there." Sure, those are good things. There's there's nothing wrong with just that. just no 15 inches out on the that street. That is exactly right. Okay. That's that when it was sense. starting to get a little bit too much. Yeah. Well, it seems like there is a certain level of crime that comes with nightlife. Oh, for sure. Um, and one thing that I've kind of frequently seen many uh many people post about and i just know this from doing uber and lyft for the amount of time that i did it here 
uh, th- there's a real like instance of trafficking and women getting drugged and stuff <laughs> like that downtown. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. It's interesting. Human trafficking um, is kind of an issue that's um, in the dark, uh, l- literally. I, those of us in our daily lives, we don't see it, but it does exist, and it is a major issue. One of the bills I did pass in my first term was to get rid of the, as they say, three-hour no-tell motels, uh, the hourly motels. Uh, these were places where they were just incubators for human trafficking for drug issues for uh, uh you know prostitution and there's just things like that that were happening not good business uh when i filed the bill a reporter called me up and said i'm, I'm interested in this story and she went out to a couple places she walked into one of them there was condoms and lube on the front counter i mean just just you know um and then in learning more from the da about what they deal with in this issue they applauded my effort to try to clamp down on that and so this bill um didn't do anything about like a stewardess or, or uh, airline pilot who came in and wanted to sleep for four hours and then then leave it, it's just that you couldn't market anymore clearly to that market that was for human trafficking and things like that so these these are issues that as a growing city like you say especially in, in nightlife that uh, we've got to get our arms around it and create a safe and welcoming city yeah, I I can see how that might be helpful, but I guess the jaded side of me just thinks, well, they're just going to go to a hotel and rent that for the night and just tell the Johns, so to speak, when to come hourly. Well, that's that's you true. know you know what I mean though, oh, like for sure. yeah. like I I feel like when it comes to something like like human trafficking. When laws like that get passed, I don't necessarily know in the grand scheme of things how it ends the human trafficking or helps. No, absolutely. It doesn't end human trafficking. That is going to be a constant of an issue, unfortunately, and on this planet probably that it is always going to exist. For sure. But, but it, was, absolutely. it was just a uh, an overt business practice that was exacerbating that issue. So it's you're, you're never going to solve it one one thousand percent probably i mean i I hope we could sure Uh, no i well there's a way things ought to be and there's a way that things are you know right and i think it's always good to try and uh combat as much as we can and try and do as much as we can but uh the biggest piece i feel like comes from public education oh gosh yes you know i feel like people learning Women in particular learning to look for the signs of human trafficking. Right. Um, it's important. What has the, the city done on that front? You know, it's interesting. So obviously we have a hospitality-oriented economy, right? Absolutely. Because we don't have a state income tax here. So we, we need to drive sales taxes. And it is, it is sure. in, important to have good quality tourism here. Yes, 100%. Um, our hospitality community, specifically in our hotels and motels, of which the district that I represent, I have the greatest concentration of hotels and motels of any district, district 15. Com- combined, District 15, because I'm just north of the airport. Yeah. So I have all the hotels and motels that support the airport, and of course I have the 30th largest hotel in the world, Opryland. Um, the hospitality industry has done some specific training for employees there to know the signs, recognize them, and even have documentation and stickers on the windows to say that this is a safe place. If you're coming here, 
you, you can let us know and we can try to help you. See, so that that's along the lines, I feel like, more of dealing with reality. On sure, ab- absolutely. You know what I mean? And it, it's just like with any issues that are that are involve the public, um, you got to think of like uh, gun violence, for instance. You know, I, I really feel like when you when you get down, when you boil it down to, to brass tacks, so much of it, it's like, yes, it's a human killing another human with a gun it's another it's violence basically like yeah. mental illness yeah. you know I, right. I like anytime there's a school shooter or anything like that it's like well how did they they get the gun like p- politically myself i am yeah. in the middle i'm a person that is pro second amendment i personally don't own any guns but it makes me feel good when i go into a movie theater and i know i go in there with my dad and my dad always has a gun sure i yeah. I feel I feel safe around guns. Sure. Um, but yes, I'm just going off on a tangent. But no, I'm with you. When uh, when it comes down to it, I, f- I feel like so much of it, it, it we have to, to educate people. And as far as tourism goes, hmm. um, I feel like it's important too. I mean, this really doesn't help us bring people to Nashville if we are like, hey, look out for this or right. be aware of your surroundings because no one. No one ever wants to think that they will be the one who is getting trafficked. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, yeah. But it's something that happens often. I, I've seen over the, the course of the time that I've lived in Nashville, like every couple of years, I'll see a bust, 25 people taken down in one fell swoop. Right. You know what I mean? You see the news stories for stuff like that. And you're like, I, I, think, I think to myself how, how often – was I like a drug mule or I was running some kind of someone to somewhere where they shouldn't have been as it, as an Uber driver. Oh, wow. You sure. know what I mean? Right, right. Just from pure numbers alone, yeah. you got to think. Right. There was, I was involved in some kind of criminal activity and had no idea about it. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I guess that's a possibility. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. Where, do, what do you feel like the biggest threats are not threats necessarily, but what are the biggest challenges that Nashville is facing right now? I think affordable housing is one of our biggest ones. Um, quality of life, being able to afford to live here, um, it, in, and specifically within uh, you know my industry, you know we can look at different industries, whether it's healthcare like nurses or our municipal employees, whether it's teachers or firefighters or police officers, but look at our musicians. Um, these are signs of us becoming a victim of our own success in a way. It's interesting when I look at things broadly, what we have tried to solicit and secure here as far as different job sectors, um, advanced manufacturing, healthcare, tech, uh, corporate relocations, and then music and entertainment. What's been interesting for me is to watch the success of the four start to wipe out the fifth in a way, because the big uh, six-figure jobs that those first four are bringing here are wiping out the musician, the songwriter, the one that already took a hit for the first 10 years of the 2000s when the digital revolution was booming and royalties tanked and middle-class songwriters started uh, evaporating. And then once we started to grow like crazy, 
then all of a sudden they had a one-two punch of not being able to afford to, to live here. So those kinds of quality of life issues, uh, affordability, meeting that intersection between transit and affordable housing, um, I, I think those are the critical issues of the folks who have lived here, especially for multiple generations. we got to figure out better ways to reinvest to bring stability and fight against some hyper-gentrification issues. So how can we do that? Well, it's interesting because affordable housing wasn't even a term that we uh, threw around very much uh, a little more than a decade ago or so. Um, we're catching up in that regard. We've made some success, but um, the, f the nonprofit community uh, plus our Metro Development of uh, uh, MDHA, Metro Development Housing Agency, um, they have done the lion's share of trying to bring some affordable housing here. Um, there's other uh, elements that we can do and we have started to do and have had some success doing, which is always a multitude of private and public funding sources, whether that's helping to pay that developer for some infrastructure costs so that they can take those dollars and reinvest in ensuring some long-term affordability. There's multiple things. There's not, not a silver bullet. There is different funding sources, federal, state, and local, plus uh, some tax increment financing, th those kinds of programs and things like that. Um, the the private-public partnerships in that regard are the way to, to get us through this, if you will, in, the, in this continuous rapid growth and development. I think a lot of people wonder, when is this going to end? When are we going to stabilize? Um, I don't think the end is uh, in sight, really, for the region, not just Nashville. It's Middle Tennessee. It's all the counties around us that are yeah. growing as well. Um, so... Um, so maybe I went off on a tangent there a little no. bit, but it's no, uh, no, it's, I, it's difficult. I I definitely uh, agree. I don't I don't know if there is any one solution. And to be honest with you, there's very few solutions. I I feel like with anything that the government should step in on, mm -hmm. whether it's the federal government, like local government, wh whatever it may be, you sure. know. Um. And I feel that way because at, at the end of the day. I feel what our society really needs to do at large is take care of the people who are poor mm. and they're sick and they can't take care of themselves. Right. The people, but there are people who also abuse the system. Mm. But if you are going to take care of those poor and sick and the elderly, the folks who can't take care of themselves, there's some level of that you're going to have to deal with people taking care advantage of of course in the system right you know what i right. mean right oh for sure yeah so there's yeah. not a one size fits all solution i think like you were talking about earlier um the affordable housing you said it's opening right behind the courthouse yes um you you call it transitional right it's for for homelessness yes it, you, the, housing is what uh, is what cures homelessness yes yes um well okay yes i agree with you it's the start it's the start, right. but I feel yeah. like honestly, counseling, yeah. um, and helping people if they need to be on medication, yes. if they need to be in therapy, if right. they need to be uh, taking some sort, some sort of something, right. you know, right. uh, medication, whatever it is. I feel like that is what starts that. Definitely, like it's it's a tragedy that there's 
homelessness that even exists right. in this Sure, world. absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I feel like so much in America, we don't actually address the root of the cause. We just try and dress it up and then pat, pat ourselves on the back. That's true. Um, th- so this 90-unit transitional housing development you know, we'll have all of those wraparound services at the bottom, whether Perfect. it's whether it's counseling, whether it's job training. Yes. All of those services are needed. Um, but but I hear you loud and clear and I agree a thousand percent about some of the root causes. And you, you, you hit on that earlier. Education. If yeah. our education system isn't setting up our young people for success, well, then this will be the result. Right. I, and, and we certainly. um we always say that in politicians, it's it's uh, always a, a thing to say, I'm going to fully fund uh, education. Well, what does that mean? And are we truly setting up our kids for success, that school-to-job pipeline? Are, are we making sure that we are setting them up to understand what they want to do, to be curious about things, and then uh, help themselves and lift themselves up and succeed? Um, it's been interesting. Um over the past uh, 25 years uh, living here about to see our public education system improve. Um, we had in 2014, we had President Obama come to my district in McGavick High School to, oh, wow. sh- to showcase to the entire nation that McGavick High School was a model for how you turn a school around. McGavick High School is one of the largest high schools in the state of Tennessee, I believe second or third. Oh, wow. Uh, when it was built in 1971, you know, the, the thing to call them back then was comprehensive high schools, massive places. Um, about 2,900 students are at McGavick High School. Well, over time, uh, it became this large place that was difficult to manage. What really turned uh, that school around, it was a national model. We, now, here locally, we call it the academy model, which is almost like uh, college in a way. Mm-hmm. You go in ninth grade and you take some core classes, and then from there, uh, it's a mix of vocational uh, with college preparatory, if you will. Okay. So you're, you're doing things such as the Academy of uh, Hospitality. You are in a commercial kitchen at McGavick High School, and you're learning to run a restaurant and, and learn the hospitality industry while you're taking all the math and science and all that that are associated with, with that. Uh, the Academy of uh, Digital uh, Communications, you're learning television and radio and uh, music studio, um, all, all of that. Um, so it's hands-on, and it is real-world experience while learning uh, college preparatory. Yeah. So it's it's not just go to college, go to college, go to college. Uh, okay, that's what they told me to do. That's what I have to do. You know, it's not, not everybody fits in that. Not everybody fits that. Yeah. You can graduate McGavick High School with your pilot's license. They have an actual um, um, uh, place uh, that has the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, simulators and, and all there. And you can, you can uh, it's the Academy of Aviation. Uh, and you can learn all of that. You can learn how to repair helicopters. Uh, the, uh, the opportunities are extraordinary. I never had that when I was in high school. No, I didn't so either. So this was a way of turning around a high school. And we have this model now throughout this entire county where parents do have a choice. Um, your local high school, if you don't like uh, the options that you have there, you can choose. But then, of course, you have to, to do your own transportation. But the but kids have options. And uh, it, I, I think we're going in a really good direction as far as our high schools go here in, in Davidson County. Yeah, no, it sounds like uh, that's definitely something that's uh, smart as far as, you know, I, I know for, for me, 
when I was growing up, I, I knew I wanted to be a musician. Right. So, and I knew I wasn't going to go to college. I didn't really have a desire to, to do so. Not that I think college is bad or wrong I, or anything like that. I just knew my strength wasn't as a student, you know? Sure. Uh, I was never good at just sitting still and <laughs> doing a math problem on the board. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I always wanted to do stuff. Right. Like, uh, I wanted I wanted to be uh, to be out in, in the world and uh, around people. Sure. Um, but now it, it kind of sounds like, uh, at least in, in Nashville, um, they kind of got that straightened out as far as the education piece goes we've made great strides and and i was very proud to sit gosh you know not even a 100 feet away from president obama just here going i'm here to showcase to the nation that this is how you do it in the united yeah. states and and that was pretty neat that was that was neat when did you start at bmi yeah. 25 years ago um so i came here to mtsu so to uh to, to your credit uh, to your points i uh uh, I was on the seven-year f- uh, four-school program <laughs> in, in college. I worked my way through college, and, uh, you know, like a lot of young folks, I, I made plenty of mistakes and uh, was not as, as focused. I started out wanting to be a high school band director. Uh, I was very influenced by my high school band director, and I was a trumpet player back then. Um, and then ultimately changed my instrument back to piano, because I have been playing piano since I was about six, uh, came here to Nashville, like a lot of people, for music. Yeah. And so I went to MTSU because MTSU said, uh, actually Georgia, where I kind of grew up, my dad was in the Army, stationed at Fort McPherson down in uh, just south of Atlanta. Georgia said, if you can find a, bo- a degree program in a bordering state that we don't offer, you can get in-state rates. And so I found probably the most marketable liberal arts degree you could get, which was at MTSU, still a bachelor's of music. So I did all my theory, uh, playing piano, studied jazz and classical and all that, but it came with a minor in recording industry. So at night, I was in the studio, I was learning uh, copyright law, I was learning artist administration and, and management and all those kinds of really cool classes. So I found a, uh, a job, part-time job at BMI working in the mailroom. And so while I finished up my degree, uh, I was in the mailroom at BMI and once I graduated, I found my first full-time job, and it's hard to believe, 25 years later, I'm still at the company. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you started out in the mailroom. I think there's a testament (laughs) um, for that, but I also feel like now um, it doesn't feel like that happens as as often. I I agree. In in that regard, it it feels like I am kind of a unicorn, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's almost from another another time, you know? Indeed. Um, Right. Because it, now it's like I feel like if you are trying to go get a, a job, I, I don't even know if young if young people today. Not not that I'm not a young person myself, but yeah. if if people want to start out in the mailroom right. or they're willing to start out in the mailroom, sure. I, I feel like a lot of people in their their early twenties, just getting out of that graduating college mode, they're ready to to take on the world. I think. We're very, very, very lucky as Americans, and we're also very spoiled as Americans. Sure. We have a lot of luxuries that the rest of the world doesn't have. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm 100% guilty of this too. I mean, I live, I was able to figure out how to get to Nashville. Yeah. And even though I was broke, um, I still was able to go out and gig and meet people and all of that. Yeah. But I, I'm also not living in a, in a, a war-torn 
country, right, um, right. maybe yeah. spiritually. I yeah, think yeah, there, there, sure. there's Fair there's an argument to be made <laughs> for that right now. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, you really started uh, at BMI. You said 25 years ago. That's right, kind of before the digital download <laughs> yes. um, thing happened. It's one month after I got my first job at BMI, this thing called Napster came out of the scene. And of course, as, as we know, it changed everything. What was the um, word on the street? What was it like back then? How were people responding to it? Well, it was interesting that the industry responded in a um, offensive mode, if you will. It's like, well, wait a second, we can't have this. And of course, as we know, they started suing a bunch of college kids. Well, the old saying goes, copyright follows the coattails of technology. And, you know, it took 20 years to figure out truly how to make it work for the working musician. And I think we're still catching up to that in, in that regard. But the Music Modernization Act that passed in 2019 mm -hmm. was the result of 20 years of effort. It passed Congress unanimously. What has ever passed Congress unanimously in, in recent uh, memory? Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to watch uh, the Recording Academy and whatnot start to have lawsuits on that um, until you finally figured out that, you know, technology is here to stay. We're not getting rid of it. We have to find a way to make it work. And then, of course, they made it work, except for the royalties still weren't getting to those who create, write, compose. Um, so it, I think we're, we're still in that mix of trying to make sure, just like anything else, that those who are in that business and, and, and do write, do perform, that they are making their fair share of royalties. For sure. Um, but we have made a lot of progress in that regard. It's been an extraordinary time to be there one month before the, the whole digital revolution started and to see where we are. Well, I think there's a big question mark on it for a lot of musicians. I know there is for me because it's not exactly clear cut. And I don't necessarily begrudge the uh, companies like BMI for this because I, I feel like it's not necessarily their fault. The money's just passing through their hands. Yeah. But th it's not really clear. Um, it, it's similar to what is happening right now, why the the – actors and writers are on strike sure right exactly um they're striking because it's not so clear even less so for them i feel like of well what does it mean to be to get royalties in the streaming age mm, very true um and when it comes to contract and nego negotiations and all that uh you could have a hit show but it's like there's been actors posting online you know like they made $900 and they, they like headline this super famous show That's right. or even less than that. Right. Or there's been some people that have been posting $0 royalty checks. Right. I feel two ways about it. Sure. I feel like as an artist and as a creative type, I'm like, this is messed up. I feel like people, if you're going to be creative type, nowadays you have to have more skills than just whatever your medium is right. that you're trying to do. Mm. But it's also... In addition to that, like, when you see someone striking, I don't know. I, I'm just going to throw a name out here. I don't know if this person was actually striking or not. But, like, Brad Pitt or someone like that. Right. They're not necessarily striking for them. They're striking for Correct. all of the, the actors and actresses who are just trying to come up, you know, and right. try, trying to have careers. That's right. Um. There is a part of me, though, that thinks like, well, you just have to figure it out. 
you know, as unfortunate as it is, but I digress on that front. Um, I hear you. So where do you see royalties and digital music going in the future with AI? Oh gosh, AI, right? This is uh, not even a, maybe a year long discussion. Not even, right? Yeah. And how rapidly it's growing. I saw that, uh, was it Sony, I believe, um, uh, has their first officer position at the company to deal with AI. So that's indicative of they're taking it very seriously. Yeah. And so where are we headed with this? Um, Is it going to be a big uh, copyright battle? Um, Is it going to be a social sociological issue is it uh gonna be um i mean i i guess yes it is all of the above right yeah it's, it's all the above um uh is this copyrightable material um that that, that kind of thing that we, we you saw recently where um john lennon's image and perhaps his voice i think even right is is being used to um try to do one more Beatles song or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I know, think Paul just, McCartney and Ringo are on right. board for this. Yeah. It feels weird, though. You know, I, I don't know how to feel about it as a fan. I will say this. I've seen a lot of videos, and I personally enjoy them, of, like, uh, Frank Sinatra singing a 50 Cent song. Right. I, yes. So, like, uh, when you get into that territory... Right. It's like Frank Sinatra's been dead for how many years now? Over 20 years. Right, right. Um, where does that go? How does sure. that work? Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, is, is it his voice, the copyright, or like, is it his image, or what, you yeah. know? Or, or how does 50 Cent get paid on that? Right. Because he's going to want to get paid. Right. No, absolutely. Is that a derivative work? Um, so there again, uh, like, like I mentioned earlier, Copyright follows the coattails of technology. Yeah. So where will this lead us to? Yeah. Uh, what is copyrightable? Um, where is there a royalty stream out of this um, and, and whatnot? These will just be interesting discussions. Uh, and I don't think there's any one uh, necessarily answer. I don't know if there is an answer right now. Right. Because I, I feel like it. you have to get to a point of critical mass mm-hmm. with the technology before something. Right. It's not going to be until there is a problem that a solution is found. Sure, right. And I will give credit to like SAG-AFTRA and the actors and the writers right. that their whole beef is, hey, before this AI thing gets out of hand, we need to work on this now. Sure. Because one of the, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting um, is these movie studios are basically going to people who would be extras mm-hmm. and um, using – like a facial scan of them right, right. and using uh, that and basically in perpetuity, they're allowed to use you for a one-time fee. Right. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if there is necessarily a solution for that. I think you got to keep um, corporations honest. Like I'm not someone who is anti-business in any, sure. any way. Yeah. But I think ethically, when companies get really big, they start to float on this dangerous line, and it's almost natural for that to happen. Sure. Because if something gets too big and too powerful, it's like, what can keep it in check? Should the government keep it in check, or should someone just have free reign? And honestly, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know. If it, again, I don't know if there is something for that, if there is an answer. 
because I don't think necessarily government interference is ever the answer, but I also don't think someone who's making money hand over fist should be the decider of what their own future and fate is as far as ethics go. Right. Well, as I say, past is prologue. I mean, if it took us 20 years to figure out digital music and how those royalty streams go, is AI going to take us another 20 years to figure out how to embed it into normal business practices? It'll be interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it takes that long for us to come up with a solution just Mm. because I feel like technology is growing so rapidly that quicker solutions will be found. Sure. And, uh, you know, I feel like the other thing is if if someone messes something up and they're trying to fix it, unless it's like a really just blatant screw up, you really can't get mad or hold it against someone in in this phase of not knowing. Yeah, no, you that, know that's fair. It's just similar to uh, digital te- technology and with with music. I mean, there was always a physical medium, and then once it uh, you know became just completely uh, about, I mean, it went quickly from downloading a song. Uh, to not owning anything, just yeah. being able to access a stream. Yeah. Right? Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's going to continue to change, and I feel like as consumer technology changes and improves, because mm. it always changes and improves. Right. There's a new iPhone every year, yeah, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, we're going to continue just going down this uh, down this path. I don't... I just think it's it's fun to kind of think about. Like I said, you know, I'm I'm all for uh, uh, a Frank Sinatra album full of Fifty Cent covers. Right. I, I bring it on. Right. I, I, as long as I guess Frank Sinatra's family is properly compensated right. and, right. and all of that good stuff. That's right. That's the but, thing. But um, yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the, it's it's pretty mur- murky. Um, but so far it's, it it's is. fun. But then, you know, as I say, the longer you live here, the, the, you know, the smaller it gets, uh, whatever. Um, it was murky when digital technology with, with music was, was happening, right? It's like, oh, no. All of a sudden, the working songwriter here in Nashville didn't have jobs anymore. They, they used to be a job that where you could, yeah. you could make a living out of being a songwriter. And uh, that, that stopped happening. Um, unfortunately, right? Um, then you had musicians and songwriters who had to go get second or third jobs in the hospitality and industry or yeah. whatnot just to supplement the income. Um, so it, it has been very interesting from a broad perspective to see the changes or lack of thereof of federal copyright law and then how it impacts the working songwriter in the uh, capital of, of music of, of the nation. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's as someone who's in, in their early 30s, you know, I, I've i never known it to be any other way. Right, yeah, sure. Because when I was growing up, uh, I remember I was probably in the 7th or 8th grade when this, this happened, but Pepsi was doing a promotion with um, with iTunes. Yeah. Where at, on the top of every single um, bottle cap, there was a code for one free song download. Mm-hmm. And I got so much music that way because that was right when iTunes was launching. It was actually a genius marketing move by uh, by Steve Jobs. Sure. Because um, now you really think um, people used to pay for music at first when it first – digital music first came out or they would just illegally download it. Right. But they figured out 
somewhere along the way how to make it easy for you to just right be able to stream it exactly you just put in a credit card number exactly you pay ten dollars a month exactly same thing there you go. used to be 10 to 15 dollars or whatever it was you know to, to buy a cd yeah right? yeah well it, it as an independent artist there's there's so much that you have to think of and consider and i know not only are you familiar with that just because of your experience in the music business but you're wife gina she's also a performer herself that's right yes um especially in the genre that she's in with being blues and an americana roots kind of uh, artist uh where you don't have a lot of commercial blues being played on commercial radio right rather right so a lot of those artists in that genre just want to be on the road 200 days a year because that's where they're making their money yeah and then the pandemic hit yeah right? and so it's just been it's been an extraordinary wild ride um uh, through all of this. Yeah. What has been your experience as a Metro council member through the tornado and through the pandemic? Oh man. Um, you know, it's funny. So I stopped shaving after the, uh, tornado <laughs> and I haven't shaved since it was because, uh, the tornado ripped right through my district and, uh, I was in triage mode for at least a week. You know, never, I mean, you, you sign up for this job because you want to help your neighbors. You want to help your community. Absolutely. And, of course, never have I felt so helpless. Um, and then, of course, a week later, the world shut down. It's really amazing to think that if that tornado had torn through here one week after, that, oh, my gosh, we, we could have been sitting with so much carnage just sitting there as we are all just sitting in our homes it was about five days after the tornado an extraordinary amount of resources uh came to the community and chainsaws never sounded so beautiful all right yeah uh, about just trying to help neighbors clean up um and and we know looking back the pandemic was already starting to really you know run through us yeah right and uh it was uh yeah just one week later then then we had to start shutting everything down. Well, um, we just didn't know anything yet about what COVID was back then either. Right. It was just uh, so much misinformation and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I was also the, 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 the pro tem, uh, the president pro tem of Metro Council, which if the vice mayor ever has to step down for a moment or whatnot, then the pro tem has to run the meeting. Um, even just the logistics of running the third largest council in the nation. New York is this is uh, uh, New York, Chicago, the Nashville as far as the size of really? our, oh, of, wow. our, of our council. Um, just logistically running council remotely was almost impossible. All the systems. This is where I get a little tech nerd in me. You know, all the systems that are made to run local legislative bodies, even even state level lo legislative bodies, they're wired on purpose. So that they can't, you can't hack them, like I guess, right? Um, that's one of the things I, I learned about. So we didn't really have any systems to be able to operate remotely. Um, so it was very eerie, if you will, to be the pro tem during that time because it was really the vice mayor and me and maybe one other council member, and it was an empty room. And everybody was, else was at home, and I was looking at like 38 different screens um, and just to run the logistics. Um, so it was very trying, difficult times, to say the least, for all of us, of course. But those that was uh, some of my unique experience there. 
Where do you stand on the new stadium being built for the Titans? I voted in favor of it, and I'll try to give you the cliff notes, even though it was the most complex issue that we've ever dealt with. So you, you had two options, Stadium A or Stadium B. The old stadium was based upon a deal that we did in the 90s to quickly try to get the team and build a stadium quickly. Um, when it was the Oilers, the when Houston, it was the Oilers, yeah. and we brought them here, we wanted a team. Well, we got. Danny, it. can you pull up the the Tennessee Titans new stadium that they they I think they just released images of it. Yeah, and even a video to show kind of uh, some some visions or what. Sorry, I cut you off. Oh, what not a, not at all. So the the deal that we did in the '90s in order to pull the team in, we used a lot of property tax revenue in order to help pay for that. Um, that was Metro credit card competing with operating budget which is that's our critical needs and of course now our critical needs are more with affordable housing homelessness obviously schools is, is primary so this deal that we've been under uh for some time was burdensome to the taxpayer and then the stadium unfortunately wasn't built that well and we've deferred maintenance on the stadium for many, many years. And the Titans, you know, that's the part of the contract. They said, okay, Metro, it's time to pony up. This stadium has some fundamental uh, issues with it that have to be addressed. And that's your responsibility with the contract. So what we decided to do, we had an option, is either start dumping in tens of million dollars of property tax revenue into this old stadium or we had an option of using Nashville's success of, of reinvesting in ourselves of a new stadium, which was domed, uh, has a built-in maintenance plan to it, and completely takes it off of the property tax payer. Sales taxes, like we talked about earlier, are what really help drive uh, a lot of revenues tourism. because of tourism. Yeah. And so the deal with the new stadium is if you use it, you help pay for it. And I know that some of the criticism was, gosh, when we have homelessness and we need more schools uh, investment and more sidewalks and things like that, why are we investing in the stadium when we should be investing in those things? That's exactly why we needed to do the new stadium. Yeah, no, because, I, I agree with that. Because we needed to free up our operating budget that pays for our critical needs. And what I would say is that the new stadium is what I would call performing debt. Our ability to pull a $760 million revenue bond, which does not impact your credit rating at all, it was either that or conservatively, we were going to have to dump between seven, eight, eight hundred million of property tax revenues mostly into the old stadium. Those were the two options. And when you look at the funding mechanism of the new stadium, the state said, you can get 500 million, but you can only use it for a brand new dome stadium. You can up your uh, hotel motel tax by 1% only if you use it for a brand new dome stadium. So we had multiple re resources here. And then the Titans, of course, put in about what, 860 million, I believe it was. And so when you look at the financing package of the new stadium uh, versus what we were going to have to do with the old stadium, it made much more sense for the taxpayer and a long-term revenue generating asset for us. This notion that we were subsidizing billionaires is false because we own it. They're our tenants. And so if we were subsidizing them by paying them for an asset that they own, that's subsidizing them. But they're our tenants. They're paying for us for a long-term revenue genera generating asset that we will own. And the other aspect to this is it wasn't just about the stadium. When you And I encourage everybody to look at the East Bank plan. This was an opportunity to get things right 
to really have some meaningful uh, growth that is going to benefit Nashville for Nashvillians, if you will, like like um, like uh, future Mayor O'Connell has been talking about, and he's not wrong. Uh, we just disagreed on on the vote for the stadium that. In order to build a Nashville for Nashvillians, we have to make sure that our property tax revenues are going to our critical needs, and that's what we did with the stadium. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great to have the uh, the the new stadium here. It's going to bring in a crazy amount of business and a crazy amount of money whenever the Super Bowl comes here. Because oh, the sure. whole thing, with uh, for those who don't know, you have to have – uh, a dome now, right, to be able to host the Super Bowl, I believe. Yes, you, you do. Uh, you have to have a, you know, the first class facility and, and, and whatnot. Um, but then going real, real quick back to the East Bank plan, we turn an extraordinary liability into an amazing opportunity. When we talk about all this growth and development, who is it serving? If you read the East Bank plan, the East Bank plan is serving us, those that have been here a long time and we want growth to work for us. This is doing that. We are now able to unlock all these massive parking lots around the existing stadium that we own. And because we own them, we can mandate what goes on there to include the level of affordability. So our ability to control the development on the East Bank, whether it's robust stormwater management system, affordability, culture, the opportunity to put TPAC, a new Nashville School of the Arts, uh, we have the opportunity of not just creating a whole new tourism zone for, for tourists, but we have the opportunity of building an East Bank for Nashvillians. And then, of course, transit infrastructure. Uh, the ability for the transit infrastructure and, and the roadways and whatnot in the East Bank to take some burden off of I-24 or whatnot, yeah. it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity. And so when I looked at all the pros and cons, either Stadium A or Stadium B as part of the East Bank plan. To me, the math, there was no, the math doesn't lie. The, it, the, the new stadium was a much better deal for, for long-term residents and taxpayers. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, especially with the, the news about Oracle, they were supposed to build a, a ton of stuff here, and they ended up kind of backing out of that, right? Well, they're still going to build the pedestrian bridge across the river. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I encourage everybody uh, just Google uh, Nashville East Bank plan. And recently, uh, uh, Mayor Cooper did uh, release a very robust booklet, uh, digital booklet that takes you through the entire East Bank plan and how that impacts the entirety of Davidson County, really, as far as connectivity, transit, affordability, culture, um, and then economic opportunity about how it's going to reinvest dollars back into our operating budget even with the financing of the new stadium yeah there it is yeah yeah i'm again you know i'm someone who is as pro business you know uh, as long as it also serves the the community absolutely growth with conscience yeah and and that's that's quite honestly what what this does um i think this was one of our planning department's finest hours of being able to take a plan and again turn a huge liability into an extraordinary opportunity my biggest beef with Nashville in my time that I've lived here, there's not any late night spots really to eat at. There's a couple. <laughs> you and my wife both. Yeah. Absolutely. So she, it might be an East Coast thing. Oh, though. for sure. The diners. We're the 24-7 diners. Yes, that's what she says exactly. all the time. Exactly. That's that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> one, of, one of these. That's right. Uh, over on the East Bank, there'll be some good 24-7 diners. Right. Absolutely. Like all night kind of places. We need them everywhere. We'd li- yeah. I would like one in Donaldson. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's it's great to kind of see things like this in Nashville happening. Hmm. Um, and when when I first moved here, I moved here. Actually, it was eight, it would have been eight years ago. Um, today or yesterday, honestly. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Happy anniversary. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> kind of looking at where the city was, it was definitely underway in 2015. Oh yeah. But it was really like 2017, 2018 right. is when it just went gangbusters. It did. Yeah, it absolutely did. And that's when the challenges really uh, started to, uh, even our financial challenges um, be, became quite evident. Um, we made mistakes. I'll be the first one to, to admit it, that um, my job is to manage the tax rate. And one of the things that we didn't do in looking at the 60-year history of Metro and how we manage the tax rate uh, it's important to, to look at the uh, the reappraisal process, the, the state-mandated every four-year reappraisal process, which basically says that as property values go up every four years, you reassess property values, but the process has to be revenue neutral. So that means that the rate goes down. So if you look at the past 60 years of reappraisal processes, um, then values go up. The rate goes down a little bit. Then in between those, every now and then, you might nudge it up. But you say, we got to nudge it up because we're growing here and we need additional infrastructure. We need additional schools here, additional police, that kind of thing. You reinvest in yourself. Yeah. What happened between 2013 and 2017 was one of the most uh, rapid four-year growth periods in all of Metro's history. But what we we're also going through was the robust uh, multi-billion dollar transit proposal so i think back then the the thought was well let's not touch that rate because it had just tanked because the values were going up because we we're about to look at uh upping four different other buckets of revenue for to have a uh, dedicated funding for transit um we learned from that obviously the transit plan failed miserably um we yeah. need to, we need to learn from that but then we also need to make sure that going forward as we continue to grow that we manage the tax rate. The tax rate now is lower than it was when I first got in office in 2015. The reason why our taxes are up is because the values have gone through the roof. Sure, which yeah. Is, which has exacerbated affordability, of course. Yeah. Um, so what, what I have learned, because I was somebody who voted no two years in a row on a modest tax increase because we were going through uh, changes in mayoral administration, the, the whole uh, transit proposal and, and all of that. And so I just didn't think we were there had I done that, this whole 34% increase that we went through back in 2020 of all years uh, probably would, would not have I happened. I remember that happen, when that happened. I'm, I'm, I'm personally not like a, a, a property owner. I rent. Sure. But uh, there's – It impacts there, you too. Yeah. There, yes, exactly. Because if, if someone is – their property tax gets jacked up. Pass then, it on. Yeah, 100%. So it, looking at it, I saw that, uh, you know, Mayor Cooper, it wasn't long. We weren't that deep into COVID yet, and it was a, announced that property taxes are going up. Right, right. Um, of all the years. Yeah. Um, it just it made a bad year worse, for sure. And uh, and I got it. I mean, we were all, everybody in elected office where it was, uh, um, you know, <laughs> about to be kicked out of town, right? Yeah. I get it. Um but I also had to do my job and look at the math and understand that even that 34% increase 
That's how low it went. That 34% uh, increase was still lower than what it was before it went down to uh, the uh, reappraisal process. Uh, the, um, yeah, so it was an extraordinary time uh, to have rapid growth and development, a pandemic, financial issues where the state said, either fix it or we're going to take you over. Um, and so I, I, I do think we've not only stabilized here at the end, now, now that we're at the end, end of this term, we've not only stabilized, we've been able to take the additional revenues and reinvest in ourselves for the long term. And I think we, we have stabilized very well. We put an extraordinary East Bank plan together that is going to return investment back to us. So, I, you know, maybe it's a little cliche, but I, I think that we've done what we had to do. The future is bright, and, and uh, we have obviously major problems to deal with, whether it's homelessness, affordable housing, or whatnot. But we have the ability now to reinvest in ourselves to deal with those problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as good as I, I think it, it does sound, there's also going to be issues that come up that we, we just can't always foresee, you know? Always. AI. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or whatever. How whatever. do you personally try to deal with that? Just like, because it, 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 I think it's both a macro and a micro thing. Sure. It, it happens for us as individuals and it happens for us um, as a culture and, and as a society. Sure. Where every now and then something just happens and we figure out, damn, we're playing a different game now. Right. COVID right. was one of those. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so how do you personally deal with that? What kind of mindset do you try and take when something unexpected happens in your life? Well, you have to be able to react to it. Um, you know, there's a, another podcast uh, that uh, Governor, former Governor Haslam and former Governor Bredesen do together. One Democrat, one Republican. And it's called You May Be Right. And the whole idea, it's very refreshing, is two guys on either side of the political aisle talk about issues and try to figure out where, the, where, we can, where can we have meeting of the minds and where are the commonalities here and can we drive solutions and maybe your idea is right. Um, yeah. And so one of the things that I learned in one of those podcasts that Governor Haslam said is politics is the enemy of strategic planning, which for me, um, I, as I'm a big strategic planning kind of guy. And in fact, I've tried to do that within the council office, but I'm only in there for four or eight years, four years at a time, two terms at max, eight years. I mean, how much strategic planning can you do before you turn it over to the next person and they may have a completely different idea? So it, it is uh, sometimes it has been a bit frustrating, I guess you could say, uh, of being just the, the realities of being an elected office that you can't plan too far into the future because things could change quickly. But then you, you pass it on to somebody else and they may have different ideas. So how do you set yourself up to be successful in the future by handing off a strategic plan to somebody else that hopefully they accept and keep going? Um you know that so that's that's been the, the interesting experience that, that that I've had where you do try to set yourself up to be uh, forward thinking and hopefully the next person that comes in um, has that same mindset but that's not always the case so a lot of this job has to be reactive um, it has to be listening to to people understanding their needs going to them homelessness was a perfect example we're kind of going back to that issue but 
you know, I never experienced homelessness yeah. until I actually went to a camp. I didn't necessarily see what they were experiencing Sad. until I got 10, 15 people together and helped clean up a camp and to understand what they were going through and whatnot. So it's been an extraordinary experience of trying to experience what others are going through in yeah. order I can be the best reactive uh, community leader that I can be. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, anytime you're in any kind of leadership role, you're going to have people that you're working with whose experience you've never had before. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it can be any number of things. It could be something like going to that, that homeless camp and cleaning up. Um, it could be uh, – just uh, culturally, you know, it could be someone from a different culture than you that you don't necessarily understand or that you know about that right. you that you won't until you expose yourself. Sure, absolutely. So I think a, a part of that, it's important to expose yourself to as many different walks of life as you can. And as someone who has lived in this city and I has held various jobs. Mm. Um, in Nashville at different industries, different levels, but they, they've all in a way evolved around tourism. Yes. Um, whether it's flying downtown on Broadway right. or being an Uber driver or right. working at Nissan Stadium and Bridgestone Arena right, right. at concerts and games. Sure. Um, I worked in the concession stand, right. you know? So it's like, like I've done all of these different things. What What I've learned especially with the uber and lyft thing i saw every aspect of life not to sound like i'm all-knowing or anything like that that's not the way i'm trying to come off no sure but i have picked up in people from housing projects i've picked up people from mansions mm -hmm. uber and lyft are really like the great equalizer right of our society it's kind of like mcdonald's yeah. in a way right because everybody in america um, or, or we'll say most people in America, sure. whether you are Jeff Bezos yeah. or a homeless guy, <laughs> has had a McDonald's cheeseburger before. Right, right, right. Maybe Jeff Bezos, he doesn't. He <laughs> might have never taken an Uber. I don't know. Um, but you get what I'm saying. Absolutely. Yes. Along those lines. You get to see all aspects of our society. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's. I, I think it's important to kind of be be on the front lines, and it's something that I'm, I'm personally – um, proud of and that I've I've gotten to see so much of, of Nashville um, from the different aspects of it because mm. it, it's a, a city that has a lot to offer uh, there's a lot of different cultures here right absolutely um, and I'm I think going. it's important to uh, to expose yourself to as much of it as possible a thousand percent and I would say especially as, a, as an elected official with having 35 districts even as a district council member and i know my neighborhoods very well i always try to go experience other parts of the county especially as an elected official whether it was the homeless camps understanding the needs of affordable housing listening to people about having three different jobs just to to, to make uh you know to put food in the table that kind of stuff um i've been like a sponge i always say that one of the things i love about this job the most is i'm always learning you know, I'm, I'm not going to be one of those politicians that comes in and says, I've got all the answers to solve your problems. No, that's not my job. And I'm never going to be the smartest guy in the room. But my job is to try to pull the smartest people into the yeah, room to be absolutely. collaborative in decision making. 
what can you do to fix the roads in Nashville? <laughs> They're the horrible. I, you know, yeah, they, they, they are. Um, from a state level, there's, there's two things. Obviously, you have state roads, state sure. routes that are also U.S. highways sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, but you also have metro roads. Um, this past year, we did put a lot of money into paving projects. I've got two pretty uh, substantial paving projects going on right now in my district. Um, the state, I think, is struggling to, to keep up. I do know, like, Briley Parkway, for example, uh, that runs through my district, is freshly paved now. Um, yes. You know, obviously, the, the weather... Being reactive in government again, right? Yeah. You know, you, you think Mother Nature is going to do what, what she does. Um, but, you know, how, how do we make sure that we keep the investment going to stay ahead of it? That's, that's key. And I think we've, we've certainly learned over the past uh, few years that you can't get far behind. And I think the state also learned in a couple of projects that they cheaped out on certain types of materials that didn't stick. Barley yeah. Park, Barley Park, Parkway was one of them. Mm-hmm. It didn't last, and we had some bad storm, and it all ripped up, and it was like driving through a, uh, uh, a like a dust cloud storm. Yeah. It was um, pretty extraordinary. But uh, yes, Lebanon Pike through my district right now is in horrible shape. Um, it's a state route, so I can't really do very much about it because the state has to come in and and redo it. They've started from the Wilson County line into. Uh, into Davidson County, and hopefully they'll continue on into my district. But um, it, it is an issue, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if we're going to be, uh, to be fair, as great as I think that the uh, the project is for, um, for like the whole East Bank, and I'm, I'm pro stadium, all of that. Sure. I also, from a person who lives here, yes, I want to be able to go and do things and have alternative ways to make money, right. more people being brought here. Sure. But on my way there, if I pop a tire right. and I can't get to work or I can't get to a gig, right. then that that's a problem. But, I, you know, again, I go back to the stadium being a long-term good investment for folks. Instead of putting our property tax revenue into a stadium, we're now able to have more dollars to be able to do just that. So had we continued with the existing stadium and had to compete for things like roads and schools and sidewalks and all that, if we had to say, well, sorry, we decided to go with the old stadium, so our capital spending plan this year is going to be encumbered by 10 to $20 million of dumping into the stadium that otherwise could have gone to redo your park, improve your school, or pave your roads. So the, the new stadium was a long-term smart investment mm-hmm. in order for us to focus a laser on our property tax revenues to go to those critical to issues. To go to the areas and, that we actually I, need. And I get that... Um, Patience is, uh, it, it is what it is, and people want it done now. But you know what? Um, the decisions that I have to make as an elected official, I have to look 20, 30 years out. The decision that I make now, how is that going to impact Nashville 20, 30 years from now? And I, I know that people say, well, I don't care. I want this done now. Well, good fiduciary responsibility um, has to also look long term. Okay. Um, why did you decide to run? for another term well um i always thought that i would do two terms if i could uh, i'll give you a perfect example my biggest project in the district has been a new library for donaldson and that has been an eight-year project and so i certainly wanted to see uh, my projects through um so i was i was uh, fortunate that in 2019 i ran unopposed um and so you know you're able to do two 
terms, eight years. And, uh, you know, even in eight years, that's a short amount of time in a way, you know. Um, so it was, uh, I, I love Nashville. I love Metro government. I do believe in it. I wouldn't have run for it if I didn't believe in it. Uh, it is nonpartisan. And because it is the third largest council in the nation, it becomes very accessible and very representative government. It allows a middle class guy like me to be able to run for office. Uh, raise 25 grand, go out, knock on doors, meet your neighbors, um, and be able to, to win, which I did. I was very thankful for. So this opportunity to serve has just been an extraordinary thing. And now the the my legacy project, I guess you could say, it sounds egotistical, but I mean, it, it is what it is. Um, it's the, a new library that's going to be there for the next 100 years. And it is not just a library, but a civic anchor for a walkable town center across the street from a regional transit hub. So all these decisions that, that I've been making about the library and everything, I've been thinking 30 years ahead. Am I building a new and improved Donaldson that will serve the next generation well. And so I'm very proud of the work that, that I've been able to do, and uh, it sets it up well for the future. When is uh, when is the library going to be up? The next guy gets to cut the ribbon. <laughs> well, that's okay. We're friends. I know he'll send me an invite. Um, but hopefully I'm going to be an at-large council member where I can uh, can, can be there. But it's going to be March of 20, late spring of 2024. Okay, yeah. uh, that it's going to be yeah. opening? It'll be open, yes. Awesome. And it's well, going to be a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, so when do people vote? Where can they vote? How do they vote? All of that good stuff. Sure. So we are right now in a runoff election. Yes. So, so that means that uh, there was, what, 14 people running for mayor. There was 21 of us running for five seats on council at large. So if you didn't uh, immediately get enough votes to avoid the runoff, or, uh, I'm sorry, to avoid the general election, you go to a runoff. So here we are now. Early voting starts August 25th. The runoff election is September 14th. All eligible voters need to get back out to the polls. Uh, turnout was pretty abysmal during the general election. Basically, 100,000 people chose the fate of 700,000. Um, you need to get out and vote. Um, that's just, it, it's, it's a perennial theme, unfortunately, right, is that not enough people get out and vote. So early voting, August 25th, the uh, runoff election is September 14th, and then the new council term, new mayor, new council, starts October 1. What would you say to someone who said, I don't want to vote, I don't really feel like uh, it, it affects me on a local level? It, at the local level is where it affects you the most. And I have seen local elections here be won by two votes. It does come down to that. I know it's kind of a cliche thing to say that my vote won't matter, but no, every vote does matter. Your vote matters. Make sure you take the time Educate yourself about who the candidates are and go and vote your conscience. It's a critical piece of our society. And uh, I don't know how we encourage people to get out and vote, but going back to education, it's teaching kids growing up that you have to be engaged, you have to be part of society, and you have to give back. And part of giving back is participating in, in government. I know a lot, we're all kind of uh, disillusioned, if you will, by especially, uh, you know, national politics. And certainly here in Nashville, you know, we're always butting our heads now with, with the state uh, in that relationship. But here locally, your local district council member makes decisions on a day-to-day -day basis that will impact your life. Whether that development goes in or not, that new housing development, whether that goes in or not, that 
that uh, financial decision whether to invest in this program in this piece of infrastructure all that impacts your life and so if you don't participate at the national level please at least engage on the local level and especially here uh, it's nonpartisan and it's all of just about focusing on Nashville beautiful where can people find you at uh, jeffsyracuse.com I'll give you my cell phone 615-886-9906 it's out there for everybody anybody can contact me anytime I love the job I hope to stay on it well hey fantastic thank you so much for coming on thank you Taylor keep on dreaming see you next week Thank you.